0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to our last binary episode of the Day Zero podcast for the summer break. I'm Spectre with me as Z. And yeah, so after this week, we'll be going on our usual summer break. Uh, we'll be returning September 25th and 26th. Uh, we'll still be doing some other content over the summer, just not the regularly scheduled podcast. Uh, we'll also be going to DEF CON this year. So if anyone's interested in meeting up or anything like that, uh, check out our Discord and hit us up there. And for anyone heading to Hardware IO this year, I will be going there next week. Uh, I'm also going to be giving a talk on uh, PS5 console security, going into some insights on the hypervisor and overall system security and whatnot. So, if that sounds interesting to you, uh, especially if you're you know from like got here from the console hacking space, um, that'll that'll probably be of interest to you. Uh, I think the talk should go up pretty soon after it's uh, given. Like the they're not shown live like CCC, but. Um, Usually they go up like within a month or two, I believe, of the conference. So it, it shouldn't be too long of a of a wait on that front. Um so yeah. Uh with that said, I'll let Z get into the spot the Vaughn stuff here.
1: Right. Yeah. This week's Spot the Vaughn. Um and actually I will also mention,
0: uh, before I jump into
1: that, uh with DEF CON, we've mentioned on the last few episodes, uh planning to do like Spot the Vaughn shirt if anybody else is interested in those. If you have, like, a favorite spot the bone that we've done, um, you know, let me know or DM me on Discord or something. Uh, Just try to decide, you know, what should actually be on there, what would be a good one for the shirt and stuff. So if you're interested in that, those shirts will probably just be on our Discord at some point if anybody's interested in it. So now the actual vulnerability here. Um, code op is a little bit of Python. Supposed to represent some sort of Python web app. I wasn't really following any particular framework in writing this. Just you've got this, uh, the top here, just C-Surf check, um, which takes in the request, checks the refer. So the idea of this C-Surf check is literally just making sure whatever the refer is, it is from an allowed uh, location. Um, So you've got the extract um and i guess i should say basically it's not really i guess a i maybe shouldn't have called this quite a a c-surf check i've seen a few things with this um because i mean with the c-surf check you are going cross origin so the refer should not match this up so it does provide some degree of security i just absolutely hate seeing this sort of defense actually used in practice versus a token which is a well understood strong defense against c-surf attacks Whereas checking the refers, like, you know, if you're checking the domain, as long as you don't have any on site request forgeries, um, like it is technically can work as long as you do this check right. It just feels so fragile to me. Anyway, the way I've implemented this check, uh, we've got the extract domain does what you'd expect uses the URL lib.parse, pull out the netlock. Uh, So it's pulling out the domain uh, plus a little bit of extra. Because I think that'll include, like, if you have credentials in it or something like that, I think that gets included in NetLock. So it's not just the host, but it's a, it's good enough for our purposes here. Check refer uh, is finally the actual kind of main code here that matters. Uh, checks the request method, so get request. don't need any checks, so it just gives you a true. In theory, you should never do anything that modifies uh, or changes state on a get. People break that all the time, but in this code, I'm just going to go run with that assumption that GET requests don't need to be protected. But if you found such a get request, that is something you could attack with this setup. And it is something actually to keep in mind when you do see these sorts of checks that only apply on like post requests or something. because every so often some dev unaware just makes it a get request or something. Uh, but now we get to check refer, so grabs refer of the header. Um, if the refer is set, goes in and checks the expected set or has an array of expected domains that it'll allow. Uh, checks if it's in there. Uh, if it's if it is in there, it'll return true. Otherwise, it also goes through and looks for the subdomain by just putting like a dot before the allowed domains and seeing if the referring domain ends with that domain. Um, including the dot there so you can't like register uh, why example.com and have it match to example.com needs to have that dot in place, uh, returning true, and then if those fail, returns false. The core bug on this one is it doesn't return false by default. There's no, like if this refer check doesn't match, there's no return down here. Uh, So it's just going to return a none. It's not going to return anything in that case if the refer isn't actually set. So if you go and use, um, on the attacker website, if they were to use something like uh, one of the meta headers where you set here, the refer policy meta headers and just say like no refer, it won't send the header at all. And um, then this check will basically pass every time because there's no refer. That's really just about noticing that they're not actually checking for that edge case. And it is something kind of easy to overlook, especially on the developer, because you read through the code and just reading it top to bottom, you see that return false apparently kind of working as like a uh fail safe, but yeah, because it's kind of applied at the wrong indentation level, it'll end up uh basically not returning false. Um, and I guess that is an important thing up at the top here. It's doing the check refer thing and checking that it's equal to false to handle like the bad case. If this were to do something like just say uh, I treat check refer as a truthy value or a falsy value um, and doing if check refer without equals equals false, uh, then this would actually kind of catch the non-return type because it'll have the implicit conversions and all of that. So there is a little bit of a scenario on that, but ultimately I'd say the bug comes down to just not watching for that edge case.
0: Yeah, sort of a fail-open type situation. Yeah. Uh, which is always a, a fun type of bug to see. All right, so uh, getting into some real vulns. Uh, up first out of ZDI, we have two vulnerabilities in VMware Workstation coming out of Pwned-owned Vancouver from this year. Uh, this chain ultimately earned uh, an $80,000 reward and eight master of Pwn points. Z, I'll let you get into the bugs here
1: yeah decent bounty on these um and they're both in a bluetooth implementation VMware. so allowing the uh host to share bluetooth devices with a guest operate with the guest operating system which is something that is enabled by default so the guest operating system can send you know their packets over to this virtual bluetooth controller and it'll do the proxying and all of that to the host machine first vulnerability is an uninitialized variable info leak and what it comes down to is in the request going to the virtual device the client is able to provide um a size variable and it ends up being written into this actual size um sorry and if you're watching just got the square space screen that always happens when we cover zdi posts because the The uh, button I use to hide these squares that I draw on screen is the same button to bring that up, because you need that feature on their website. Uh, Anyway, uh, what you've got is this URB, URB actual size variable. That is being set with an attacker-controlled value. It's setting a size that isn't too crazy, like that attacker can indicate a size I don't quite like the naming of that but I'm not sure if this is reverse engineered naming or if this is um where the names are coming from because this does seem to be reverse engineered that could just be their call in which case whatever I don't doesn't matter anyway actual size variable um and what generally happens is you make you have your packet it has the opcode, and it's going to be it's going to enter some handler It'll enter whatever handler. That handler will end up writing the actual, actual size into that structure. Um, So whatever the attacker put there just doesn't matter. The handler is going to overwrite that with an appropriate value. But if you give it an invalid opcode and basically have an invalid request, it's never going to hit that handler. It's never going to overwrite that actual size. And so it's going to um, keep processing, however. It's going to send this stuff through. And ultimately it ends up reaching uh, the urb response function where it just thrusts that actual size value, um, takes that actual size value and uses that value as how much data to send back or send over to the guest. Does the copy using it? Um, It just sends it back. So that can result in the uninitialized value read. I think it's kind of a fun bug where you do have that just... You know, again, it's about tackling the edge cases and thinking about those edge cases. This works under the normal scenario where it hits a handler that does everything right and then fails when you hit the edge case of what if it's an invalid packet? That doesn't work, never hits the handler. Actual size is now attacker controlled. Thus, leading to the uninitialized value. Or, well, potentially. I mean, it's, it's an overread, So it's going to copy too much data, which is potentially uninitialized or just extra data off of the
0: heap. Well, to be fair, I I think it is still within bounds of the buffer. Like they say that it's, it's bounds checked there. Uh, It's just that, you know, where they don't zero the memory or whatever, at time of allocation, uh, whatever memory is not used in there is, is just going to leak through. So, um, I guess being able to provide like an artificial size, um, you're not bound to the amount of data that was actually written into the buffer. Yeah, so, yeah,
1: sorry, th- that is kind of what I meant there. Like, um the uninitialized that off the heap from like what wasn't initialized, what wasn't actually written. But yeah, good clarification. And I was highlighting uh the line that had that uh condition check there. Like th- they are doing some. Uh uh and then yeah, leading into the uh stack based overflow, uh which was the second bug they had. I feel like we don't get a lot of information here about some of the details on this. But the gist of it, how they explain it, just comes down to uh, the uh, sending SDP packets, a service discovery protocol, send these packets, open up the socket uh, so you can send these packets to it. It ends up evoking this read element function. Read element will try and determine the size. It's got this switch statement where it's just switching over uh, basically different types. Of ways that size could have been sent there or fixed size. Uh, and it has this le size variable that gets assigned depending on whatever case. In a few of these cases, it seems like that ends up being a fairly dynamic value. In some of these, it's just hard coded. Um, ultimately, that value gets passed in uh, to this uh, read raw int function, uh, which ultimately leads to it being used in a mem copy uh leading to uh writing too much data onto this stack
0: buffer um yeah they just have, straight up don't check the length of the size going yeah, to mem copy this, it seems
1: <laughs> and this one yeah they're not checking the size at all it's just uh you using the size that's provided. The thing that are the couple things that don't make sense is one they don't talk. So they don't really talk about exploitation at all here. This is, it leads to a possible stack overflow is what they mentioned there. And they mentioned how the attacker can control the size argument. They don't talk about which like, uh, option they fall into for their control. Um, looks like, I, I don't know where all these variables are exactly coming from. Uh, Seems sane to assume that it's probably this five one because it kind of has a really clear direct control versus having like a rotate left or whatever's going on. And this one looks like it's doing some an Indian-ness
0: shift, maybe. I don't uh, know. Which line are you looking at? Uh, sir? Line forty. Oh, I believe that's a... Yeah, I believe yeah, that's reversing DNS, lo- so yeah. Looks
1: like it might be in this. Uh Like, it's doing some shifting on the value, whereas at least five is something else. Either way, one of these options gets them in there uh, with the attacker-controlled size. But yeah, I feel like they just gloss over a lot of detail over how this one works, and we don't really know anything about the buffer they're landing in, besides that it is a possible stack buffer overflow. All of the functions they include, this is just a magic pointer that we have coming in somewhere on the stack, so.
0: Yeah, I wish we had a little bit more information on what the stack buffer, or what the stack frame looks like of where they're getting their overflow. Um, Because one thing I was thinking about here was uh, like, towards the end of the post, they say that they took it to code execution, and they show popping calc on the host machine, so we know that it is exploitable. Um, But you know, that question always comes up when you're talking about stack overflows. Is like, uh, if stack canaries are in play, I believe they should be in VMware. Um, and with the type of info leak they have, where it's so restricted, like it's not like you're able to read uh, out of bounds data or something. It's just an uninitialized leak. So you're kind of limited in how much you can leak uh, and from where, like you're only really going to be leaking from the heap. Um, so I don't think you'd be able to leak stack canaries or anything like that. So my guess is they're probably hitting some other data on the stack, like some other pointer that's not protected uh, instead of going for like the return address or something that said, I can only like speculate and guess at that because they don't show uh, you know, the state of the stack of where they're overflowing. So I I do wish there was a bit more information on that and just a bit more information on the exploitation in general, but uh, you know, with ZDI it's often you don't get that information. So we're just left to speculate that said uh, these are pretty cool bugs. Not too surprising that uh you know these low hanging fruit style issues were found in the Bluetooth driver uh seems to be like across the board uh Bluetooth is uh, is a pretty weak spot and just something that sucks to deal with uh, and people don't like dealing with it so it's just kind of like rushed code yeah, um, not has, well combed over
1: it has that complexity in terms of hitting it like they do talk about needing to uh, go through this process to actually open the socket to it to start sending uh the sdp packets over to and such there's that added complexity but yeah i like the bugs i thought the first one uh, was kind of the more fun bug out of the two again i I always like those i mean it's an edge case it's just not dealing with that one edge case um they're always fun to see it's sort of similar to
0: spot the bomb in a way
1: in a Um, way yeah um It's one of those things that feel like it gives you a bit of inspiration when you start dealing on other software for, well, can I apply the same edge case to other things? And there's other software where you're going to be able to send things with opcodes and give it a wrong opcode and see what kind of falls out of that. Granted, that is probably already a test case you try. Like, that's that's not exactly a complex test case. But looking for those edge cases in the air handling and all of that, eh, they're always fun.
0: Yeah, it's it's a good source of inspiration. Uh, Even if it does seem obvious, it's, you know, we kind of say it, we've said it before, but like, it's easy to forget those obvious edge cases, too. So, yeah, uh, a good reminder of that.
1: Like with last week's, well, it's easy to focus on the complexity and not the, uh,
0: um, not the dumb error cases. (laughs) Yeah,
1: that and like, it's easy to focus on the code that's there and not the code that's missing. Yeah. Um. Because that's another thing. Like it's so easy to look for the vulnerable code and not the lack of like the checks. If so that makes into- sense.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good way of uh, of capping it. Yeah. So, getting into our next post from Neodyme, uh, we have vulnerabilities in CS:GO. Uh, so. Yeah, details for bugs in CSGO that were patched uh, at the end of April of 2021, mostly logic bugs, uh, which is interesting because pretty much every time we've covered Source Engine topics in the past on the podcast there were memory corruption, I think they actually comment something to that effect on this post. So it's pretty rare you see these types of logic bugs in Source Engine being talked about. Um, And yeah, so getting into the first bug, uh, they talked about privileged commands. So if you played CSGO before, you Probably know that CSGO, you can enter commands in, um, and there's also like privileged commands. So things like quitting the game, the quit command, uh, and the intent is servers can send unprivileged commands to set up certain things that they need to, like C bars or whatever. Um, but privileged commands are, you know, privileged off. They they can't be used. Um, but the nuance comes into play is that there's two types of servers that you can have in CSGO. You can have single player servers and multiplayer. Uh, single player servers can execute the more privileged commands on behalf of the user for things like changing keyboard settings and whatnot, uh, and then multiplayer ones are more restricted. Uh, and the way that they actually determine which type the server is, is by checking the this max clients uh, variable. Uh, the problem is that's controlled by the server itself, so by the server just pretending it's a single-player server and sending one for that variable, uh, the client will think it's a single-player server and it'll allow privileged commands to be executed. So just kind of misplacing trust in like where the data's coming from, I guess, is is what that one boils down to.
1: Yeah, I thought there's kind of that misplaced trust. There's also almost trying to be too smart by using a value that's technically unrelated to it. Um like, I guess you could say a single-player server is one that has max clients of 1. Like, that is kind of a fair assumption.
0: Um, but it is kind of a hack as well. Yeah, it,
1: it feels very much like a hack to me, where it's, you know, that isn't the right value to be using for that. Like, it's kind of, like, accurate to say that, but, like I said, that's just the server-reported value. It's not... It shouldn't be considered trusted. Yeah. Yeah. Like it would it would be better to look at what is the player doing and kind of tracking a bit of that state on the client to say, am I intending to connect to a single player server? Um, and kind of looking at that perhaps. Um, uh, or I mean I don't know, it does get a little bit tricky when it comes to trying to determine what the server supports without um
0: like the server of, you kind of have to put some trust in the server yeah, yeah. That, it's, it's a bit of a tricky tricky scenario to handle for sure
1: yeah that's kind of why I'm getting at um using more of the client-sided intent at that point like that's something you'd want to look at and enforce on the client side rather than I I mean I guess this is on the client side regardless but by looking at the state of the client rather than the server that they're connecting to. Um, it does create a bit more like spaghetti code when you have to have this concept of the single player server that isn't kind of sitting in the same code, most likely as everything else, because you have to track it through the state. Um, but yeah, I mean, just this feels like a hack anyhow, and obviously kind of bit them a bit.
0: Yeah. So from that ability to send privileged commands, that's where the other bugs come into play and chain on top of it. Um, Bug number two was an arbitrary file download. So another thing that source supports is the ability to play custom maps and such. Uh, and to do that, it has to be able to download the assets. Uh, they try to do some filtering on this <clears throat> to prevent the client from downloading like executables or linked libraries or anything sensitive like that. Um, and these files can be downloaded from the server directly or over HTTP if fast uh, if this fast DL variable is specified. Uh, the problem is when they're building the file name of where to, like write the file to, it truncates to 256 bytes. And the file name is built with uh, by using the server name and the file name concatenated together, each of which can also be 256 bytes. So by just passing a large string between the two of them, you can get the extension truncated and bypass the filter. Uh, The third bug is an arbitrary text file write, um, this one's the the shortest in detail and, and simplest. Uh, it's basically just the fact that by using con log file, uh, the con log file command, they could write arbitrary log files into arbitrary game folders. And again, like the second bug, it was vulnerable to that same truncation issue. Um, and so you could also have an arbitrary file extension. Uh, finally, the fourth bug is the ability to launch the CSGO client in insecure mode, or rather switch it into unsecure, uh, insecure mode. So in a usual launch of CSGO, the integrity of the game's assets, uh, particularly libraries, are verified. And if they're not validated, uh, you can't play on official servers, you know, for obvious reasons. They don't want you to be able to connect to official matchmaking with a modded client. Um, But if you launch with the insecure flag, those checks aren't performed. Uh, And you can also load DLLs outside of the game's binary uh, directory when the insecure mode is is set. Um, And you can set this insecure mode by simply causing a DLL verification failure. and get your attacker-crafted DLL from the previous bugs loaded and executed. Uh, of course, you can't overwrite DLLs that are loaded in a running process, so they had to be a little bit careful of um, trying to choose something that they would be able to overwrite while the game was running in the attack. Um, and they ended up finding one that wasn't loaded, but is still verified, being DLL. A um, little bit of history there. Basically, that file was superseded when panorama mode was at the csgo which is when they redid the menu from the old uh somewhat like blocky ui into the more fancy one uh so that client.dll just kind of got uh you know deprecated but it was still verified it just wasn't used so they were able to leverage that to switch the game into insecure mode and launch their their hijack dll uh so yeah kind of an interesting chain it is more logical bugs than what we typically cover on the podcast um And like I said, it's interesting because I don't think we've really seen logic bugs used in this way uh, from Source Engine. Typically, when you talk about Source Engine, it's your memory corruption chains, which we've covered a few of in the past. Yeah,
1: and was definitely expecting this one to be that. So unfortunately, when I was reading it last night after the bug bounty episode, I mean, this probably would have been better on our bug bounty episode, in fairness. Although it is kind of a reminder that even in these native applications, it's not all about the memory corruption. Um, you know, we're obviously focused on the binary level exploitation, but I don't know. These bugs are obviously becoming more common and, uh, you know, these are more functional, more. This isn't what I'd call a data oriented attack, but it is still kind of abusing the game's data. So, like, you have that pulled over like they are bugs that you should be thinking about when you're doing your auditing like might enjoy the binary level bugs more these sorts of bugs are definitely very impactful harder to detect um in a lot of ways uh and, and in some ways it can be easier to like detecting misuse of uh, some of the commands can be an easier thing in some situations but, but
0: yeah it's Mainly it's just not touched by a lot of the mitigations where effort is being put into. Yeah. Um because you're not you're not corrupting memory, really. Uh you're just abusing intended like uh intentions of the code. So yeah. Um it, it's it's fun to see those when they crop up. Uh, yeah, that, uh of the technical Go ahead.
1: I was gonna say the uh truncation issues, you know, really remind me of old PHP bugs where you'd be able to do the same with um uh like File includes that had the .php appended in them. Give a really long string, and you can get like the .php truncated uh, when you hit the max path length. Uh, had a very similar feel to that. I mean, it's a classic trick uh, in dealing with uh, file upload restrictions or uh, extension restrictions. To At least check for very long file names to see how they handle them, and if you can get uh, things truncated. So outside of
0: the technical details, sorry, did you want to add something on there too?
1: No, go ahead.
0: Okay. Outside of the technical details, the timeline was kind of interesting. Uh, we don't tend to talk about these as much anymore because they got a bit repetitive, but especially when you're talking about valve, uh, they tend to be a bit more interesting. Uh, we've commented on Valve's Hacker One program before, and how ridiculously slow and unresponsive they are. Uh, so this bug was initially reported back in the beginning of 2020, and there was some back and forth throughout the year where Hacker One struggled to reproduce the issue. Uh, the researchers here continued to try to make it easier and easier, and eventually uh, they they figured it out, passed it on to Valve, um, and. Yeah, so then in 2021, they asked for updates, still didn't really get any. And finally, in April of 2021, Valve shipped a fix for these issues. And on May 1st, they were paid out. Um, So, you know, at at least like between the fix and being paid out, that was pretty quick. Um, But then, yeah, they they still didn't get like any communication. Uh, March of 2022, they asked to disclose the report. And still to this day, it seems they didn't get a response. So they just decided, you know, it's been like three years since we reported this vulnerability. Let's just go public with it, which I think is fair. Um But yeah, it's just, uh, you know, another reminder of the unfortunate fact that Valve products are like seem like a really fun area to do research in. Uh You can find some pretty cool bugs there. They also pay out pretty well, Uh especially at the time. I think they were still paying like the $10,000 or whatever for full RCE, which I'm assuming is what their bounty was here. I don't think they actually say what the amount was. Um, but yeah, in terms like, you know, you will be paid a lot. Uh, it just might take like 10 years or something. <laughs> it's like when you win the lottery, it's like, you, you don't get that money right away or, or even a response right away. So yeah, I, there's a lot of information in the timeline here. It took them a while to, uh, acknowledge the issue and fix it. And then they just never responded on disclosing it. bit unfortunate, but, uh, that's just how Valve valve be valve you know i mean it's unfortunate
1: it's also like by disclosing it they can also just end up being kicked off of hacker one because of that technically speaking
0: yeah Um, uh they, they could be found in violation of of the hacker one guidelines yeah
1: which in fairness like i don't agree with i'm just stating the fact that hacker one like they definitely can be kicked off just for doing this disclosure even though this was fixed so long ago yeah um if you want more on that topic, we talked about it yesterday well, we talked a bit about issues with bug bounties uh, on yesterday's episode.
0: I was just about to say this ties in perfectly with uh, Pi 3s blog posts as well, so yeah, definitely check out yesterday's episode if you're interested in more of the meta discussion around that.
1: Yeah, and in terms uh, of the timeline, like, I don't know. I thought I had heard that valve was actually improving a bit and trying to take something more seriously in 2022. Um, Although seeing this, that they did their disclosure uh, request and had no response all throughout 2022 makes me question that. But I had thought I heard things were improving over there, Um, that they were making significant changes to kind of their structure, how they were running things. Maybe that's not the case, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, because this is kind of old. And kind of side note, I love the fact that they just sent happy anniversary when they asked for the update Yeah, after it was a a year old.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I like that. Um, Yeah, it could have just been a case of something that fell through the cracks in all fairness, but yeah, hard to say. They have a history of things falling through the cracks, though. Yeah, it's hard to give them the benefit of the doubt, for sure. Yeah,
1: Like, that's kind of the problem. I've heard that, but this is a clear example of it. Like, it's still happening.
0: Yeah. So moving away from things that weren't really reported, uh, we have an Oday in the Wild post from Google Project Zero on uh, an issue in Windows activation context. And Z, I'll let you take this one away.
1: Yeah, so... The core of this bug, I think, is relatively easy to understand. And at its core, like, the root of this bug was actually reported back in... um, 2015 uh, with uh, James Forshaw bug report. Bring that up here quickly. Uh, Root of the vulnerability, though, is as an application starting up, uh, like a privileged service is going to be able to, or may need to, for whatever reason, impersonate other users. take the token, exchange them, you know, be like, hey, give me these privileges or whatever goes through that process. If you're into the Windows stuff, you can dive much more deeply into how all of that works. Um, But the gist is they're taking over or impersonating as another account. And in that process, they're going to, when they impersonate, they're also going to take over. Like if that user has, um, uh, in this case, if they have remap or any of their remapping that's happened, um, all of the file access here, It's mentioned here impersonations used by many privileged processes in Windows during impersonation. All file access are performed using the DOS device map of the impersonated process. So, um, if the user has used their uh, symbolic linking to remap the C drive, the privileged process will now end up using kind of all the remap that they've done so they can be tricked or that privileged process can be tricked into loading. Um, like the DLLs or arbitrary files and whatever it's actually trying to load from unexpected locations because of this remapping. Um, And it really is, in a sense, that simple. Um, It's just redirecting where the privilege process is going to load. So kind of think of like some of the DLL redirecting tricks that have existed kind of in line with all of those. Um, so yeah, fairly straightforward. I thought it was interesting that like at its core, this bug was reported in 2015, where the report here was when an application impersonates another user, all file access are performed using the current DOS device map under that token. Same issue just, uh, eight years ago.
0: Yeah, I guess I made a joke at the like transition of this topic of things not being reported, but yeah, this one was, and it just kind of got lost through time, I guess. Uh, I noticed that the report was fixed. I didn't take uh, too close of a look at this report. Um, is there like any comments below of like how they fixed it? Because uh, the way that this works, because the top of the Project Zero post basically says that this was fixed for the print, the print spooler, uh, but the underlying root cause wasn't fixed. Um, so just kind of one of those cases of like, You know patching up a hole with gum or whatever instead of doing a proper fix and you know there was another hole and that allowed it to be exploited in this case through the uh through the activation context so yeah i guess just a incomplete fix which you know we talk about uh, a lot of the times when we talk about it it feels like it happens with windows (laughs) that's just a you know a coincidence or like a bias but uh yeah, you and know, fairness I, it this does seem everywhere. like something where it's it, yeah it's just we've talked we about to it, on, it more with microsoft
1: yeah we've talked about it on linux so i think a big thing is microsoft especially gets the patch diffing done like every patch tuesday people are in there to go patch death
0: there's um, a lot of incentive to do so yeah
1: yeah and i feel like on linux like looking at the patches absolutely happens and looking at the commits and all of that like people are doing it for sure but I feel like the drive is definitely a bit different. It's a lot more of just the code analysis rather than really looking at what the change, like, I don't know, people...
0: I don't know how to put it into words, I guess, but I, I do feel like there is... Basically, I think there's a shift in the audience of people who are doing the patch diffing between um, some other operating systems like Linux compared to Windows. Um, I think you have a lot more, like, people doing it with malicious intent, like trying to find variants or incomplete fixes in uh, the intent of like using them on windows. Uh, and part of that, it comes down to a debate that we've commented on before. I think it's been a little while since we talked about it, uh, but kind of the open source versus closed source debate. Whereas where you like, when you have open source, uh, some of the people who are more on the defensive side are more, uh, you know, more likely to look at the diffs and and report them because you know it doesn't require a huge amount of effort to even find them whereas in windows where everything's closed source uh for the most part the people who are going to have the resources and time and effort to dedicate into looking at the diffs are probably because they're looking to attack it not because they're looking to keep it safe so um it's just kind of a different audience i guess and who's doing the diffing is how i would put it
1: yeah i think that's fair um jumping back onto this vulnerability though uh talking about the fix um Back with a fix actually uh with this twenty fifteen bug uh Microsoft, they haven't mentioned here uh Microsoft introduced a new flag object door impersonate device map, which turns off impersonation during load library um talking about the printer bug uh the legitimate print config dll will be loaded um during the loading process, CRSS will create the activation context. And it's in the activation context, which is where this bug specifically exists. And we'll still use the old uh, remapping um, out of, I guess I probably should have talked with that a little bit more. uh, At at the top of this topic, but like the difference with this one. uh, So the 2015 bug was just this root bug. This one specifically is the activation context is still using that device map, um, which is kind of what telling you what files to load, path, things that it depends on, um, and all of like, the dependencies and all of that uh, are being configured at that stage when it's creating this activation context. Uh, so that's kind of where this bug still exists. Uh, so yeah, patching it was just introducing this flag and inconsistent uh, checking of it, I guess. Or, well, yeah, I guess the enough. fix would have been, uh, having more consistent checking of it.
0: Fair enough. Um, and, I, yeah, I guess I'm not too surprised given, like, the, com- the relative complexity of what's going on here that, uh, you know, something like this would slip through, so, uh, yeah. Fair yeah, enough. Yeah, I'm going to be honest, like, I'm trying to explain the bug, but
1: I don't know Windows super well, um...
0: It does have a lot of unique nuances to it, uh, especially when you get into like these sorts of bugs. Uh, there's a lot it's of like things that check. are,
1: uh, I, I mean, in a sense, unique. But there's only a few operating systems, so like you've got your Unix variants, you've got Windows. Um, like ultimately, you don't have a lot of families. So, like technically, yeah, it's unique, but it's just different from what I've dealt with being mostly on the Linux side, the Android side and all of that.
0: Well, it's also just different because Windows inherits a lot of stuff from having to support legacy things like DOS. Um, so because of that, you have these unique sort of challenges and things you have to deal with that you don't really have to deal with as much on other operating systems because they're not built on having that legacy support. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's where these sorts of bugs seem to you know, uh, become a problem. So, switching from Windows to Linux, uh, our next post is from Exodus, uh, or sorry, uh, from Interrupt Labs, uh, and is a post by uh, Maxploit on a Linux kernel volume in IPv6 routing, uh, specifically routing for low power and lossy networks, or RPL source routing. Uh, and it's in the networking stack, so they do go into a fair amount of detail on the relevant structures for that area, uh, the most relevant one being socket buffers, or SKBuff. Uh, so, socket buffers are used for handling most network data. And they consist of a head, tail, data pointer, along with the length. Uh, And there's some helper routines for pushing and pulling data to and from the start of the buffer. Um, But you have to take care that, uh, you know, like the data is not going past like the the tail or anything like that. Like you you have to take some care with how the uh, data inside of a socket buffer is structured. So getting into the routing aspect, uh, the routing header consists of an offset to the next header, uh, the extended length, the routing type, segments left, things like that. Uh, and then there's the auxiliary buffer for type-specific data. Uh, for RPL, that consists of um, information needed for decompressing addresses. So one of the things RPL seems to support is this idea of compressing addresses. So you can have you know this body that consists of a, a vector of addresses uh, and then specify compression information. So uh, ComparL, um, will consist of the number of octets to emit for all of the addresses except for the last one and comp E um has the number of octets to emit for the last address and using that information you can uh you know use that for the incoming data to figure out which address information you can emit and sort of derive on the other side uh without all that information being passed through i'm not sure of the history of why they have this address compression uh, but i guess if you're passing a, a ton of addresses you know it probably adds up to, to making it worth it so ipv6 um, is they're kind of big like what are they Sixteen bytes yeah ipv6 so, addresses compared to ip4 are quite quite a bit larger than like a just a 32-bit and so it yeah. might make more sense there as well
1: they're talking about i think sending up to like 30 some of the 30 yeah at one point here they're sending 32 of the one byte addresses so like if that those were full
0: addresses if they could send that like it It really adds up, yeah uh so but, yeah, so compression, like it makes sense to do it here they they are able to save some data and going across a network, um, but of course, that does add some complexity because you then have to be able to deal with edge cases. Um, So the edge case that they focused on here is what happens if you have uh, a comp RL and comp RE value that makes it impossible to recompress the addresses. Uh, So the example they give here is like a comp RL um, of 15 so that each address only has one byte uh, or each address except the last address and a comp RE of zero so that the last address has the full uh, 16 bytes. Uh, in this case, you can turn a 48 byte large address vector into 528 bytes on recompression. Uh, and I say recompression in air quotes because it's kind of a misnomer in this case. Um, I'm not exactly sure the, the maths of why uh, you know the recompression gets that large. Um, I think you'd have to be intimately familiar with the compression algorithm and everything to get that but what's important for the bug is that it happens uh so oh, because so you get I, such a large i do get why
1: this happens actually i know we were talking about this right before the episode and i was a bit confused uh but the issue is because um um you've got these two values, the cmpre and cmprl uh so when you're on the last one segments left uh equals to one Uh, that's the one that's uncompressed, and now that's going to be part of like the main body again after this step, so none of them can be compressed, because it can't apply that, uh, like stripping the 15 bytes. It can't apply that to all of the other addresses, because that one is sitting in there that needs all of the bytes, Um, and thus it
0: multiplies the size. Ah, fair enough. That makes sense. So, yeah, because that happens... um it when it then calls uh, skb push to add the address vector to the head of the skb uh, if it doesn't have space for those 528 bytes it'll cause the data pointer to fall below that of the head pointer Uh, and that's relevant because if we go back up to the top and look at skb push uh, they have this like bug check where if the data is lower than the head uh, it'll trigger a panic condition Uh, so you know that that ultimately leads to a DOS. Um, So it is kind of a cool and subtle bug, uh, something that would be very hard to catch just reading the code. Uh, It's something that I think would be more likely you'd catch through like dynamic testing, uh, like fuzzing or something like that. Um, But it is triggering a DOS. I don't think you'd really be able to exploit this beyond that because you're triggering a panic here. Um, I know we don't cover DOSes too often, but I still think the way that this bug worked was pretty cool. Especially like when you deal with like compression and things like that, uh, you get some interesting cases you have to handle that you don't really see in other places.
1: It's a clever bug, just in the way that works, it requires, um, and in the way you're kind of hitting it. Also, as a DOS, like, I mean, reference back, like, a really old school bug was the ping of death, um, which was just sending a large ping packet. Um, And you could just take anybody off the internet by sending a large ping packet to them for a little while, or almost anybody it felt like. Um And so this is basically, you're kind of getting a similar DOS in that you just need to be able to send this IPv6 packet to them. Uh, You know, the internet has changed since the days of the ping of death, which... Um i am just trying to look up here exactly how long ago that was but like I feel like that was uh 80s or 90s. Like Oh, was, I was
0: going to guess like early 2000s. I didn't think it was 80s and 90s. I guess I was uh,
1: I I don't have a the Wikipedia here isn't showing me any date so uh okay.
0: I'm not exactly sure on Basically, a long time ago. <laughs> that's what we can summarize it to. So, yeah, the, the internet has changed a good bit since then. So, I, I'm not sure how impactful uh, this would be compared to that. But, and as far as DOSes go, I guess it is a little bit more uh, practical and useful than some of the other ones that you see out there, uh, where it is in the networking stack and whatnot. So, that that's a fair shout as well.
1: But, yeah, I uh, do think like, um, just in terms of how it happens, like I think it's a cool bug, regardless of um, like not being able to take it to code execution. It's still a fun bug. I mean, getting a DOS from a network packet, I think's pretty solid. I, I don't know. I guess, I guess then I'd have to say like getting a uh, crash on. I guess the big difference here is this is crashing the kernel. This is operating system level. This isn't just crashing an application. We don't tend to talk about the application like denial of services. I mean, sometimes we do when just you have a bug that isn't exploitable that needs another bug or something. But um, in this case, like, it's the operating system. It's taking, in theory, down the entire server. Or just the QEMU instance if you're on the cloud.
0: Yeah, which in some cases could be quite significant. All right, so uh, let's get into our shout section of the show. So up first for shout-outs, we have a uh, Google Chrome uh, V8 issue from Exodus Intelligence. Uh, we would have tried to cover this as a full topic, but honestly, just kind of ran out of time and got lost in uh, the business of other stuff we had to do, so we didn't get a, uh, enough time to get a good grasp of it. Uh, the vulnerability is in TurboFan, as you can probably expect. Most of the V8 bugs nowadays are are coming from that area, uh, which is like the the JIT optimization stuff. Um, So yeah, Exodus Intel usually puts out some pretty uh, nice blog posts. This one goes into a fair amount of background on Turbofan and uh, the relevant stuff for the vulnerabilities. So uh, if you're interested in browser stuff, I think this would definitely be worth checking out. Um, A lot of the times with browser, a lot of the knowledge you pick up from one write up will carry over to other vulnerabilities uh whether those be other ones that you're trying to exploit that are known or even just finding uh new bugs uh there tends to be a lot of n- like knowledge sharing that carries over with browser so definitely wanted to give this a shout for anyone interested in that but uh yeah we just didn't get enough to, time to cover it as a full topic uh as another shout um as I mentioned at the top of the episode I will be giving a talk at Hardware IO Um, It's going to be talking about the PlayStation 5 internals, mostly focusing on like the hypervisor uh, and the security aspects of it and how exploitation has had to shift um, going from the PlayStation 4 to PlayStation 5. So I think it'll be interesting, an interesting talk to some people out there Uh, that'll be at uh, June 3rd. I believe, yeah, it's the second day of the conference that I'm giving this talk. It's at the two o'clock slot. Um like I said at the top of the episode, it won't be live, but it should be uh you know up on YouTube or whatever within a reasonable amount of time, uh as I believe the hardware ones usually are. Uh, it I, I'm might not be gonna be dropping if you're there. Well, yeah, it'll definitely be live if you're there. <laughs> um but yeah, I'm not gonna be dropping like, you know, uh O days or something uh, live on the stage or anything like that. Um, I will be speculating on some, you know, techniques and maybe some things you could do to get around certain things. Uh, but yeah, uh, if that sounds interesting to you, feel free to check it out. And like I said, if you are going to Hardware I O or uh, if you want to plan to go, uh, feel free to hit me up and, and we can see if we can meet up or something at it. Though I will be pretty busy. I'm good. that's going to be a packed week for me. Uh, so yeah. you will be
1: dropping a jailbreak though.
0: No. <laughs> uh, and yeah, uh, getting into our last shout out. Um, so, Z, you have some resources for while we're away, uh, where this is our, our last one until we come back until the summer. So, I'll let you go through some of those and then we'll wrap it up.
1: Yeah. um I just figured since we're going to be gone for a while, some of you may be interested in uh, other resources that you can follow. Uh, and I guess one of the main things that I will mention is our Oday fans website. Mentioned it a handful of times, but this is a site I built largely out of doing kind of the work of trying to find resources for the podcast, um, you know, I end up following a lot of feeds. So this aggregates a ton of those feeds, uh, brings them, brings together what are hopefully mostly the vulnerability write ups. Unfortunately, right off the top here, you can see some that aren't really vulnerability write ups. Um, but it tends to be a lot more focused on the vulnerability write ups from a number of different feeds and locations um and it kind of lives off of uh my feed reader uh what it'll do is it'll look at what I've got in my feeds and then like look at all of those uh and I have some mark to go on this so as i as I find new blogs or add them there. O'Day fans will improve, but I do have kind of the more complete list of blogs that people can check out too, uh, from that. That's if you're looking for like the write-offs and all of that, If you're looking for podcasts, Um, I'm going to give the same three kind of podcast shoutouts outs I gave for a bug bounty episode, uh, starting off with critical thing. It's a bug bounty podcast. They aren't really talking about the binary exploitation, but they are talking about at like actively hunting for bugs and techniques on that side. Um so I do think there's going to be some overlap in interest. Yeah, it is a lot more of the higher level web app stuff, and of course they're going to be talking about recon and some things that are a bit less applicable to the binary side. But I think there's a reasonable chance there's some overlap in our audiences on that side. Uh absolute appsec is podcast I've been listening to for a little while. They're application security focus so again they are higher level unfortunately I don't know any other like low level binary podcasts that I actually get into that but the nice thing about absolute appsec they do talk about things like code review about um actually they do a course on code review uh which I have not done so I can't speak to the quality but their experience have been in the industry for a while um have a lot to say have some good discussions on there they're a lot more on the uh Discussional side and discussing kind of things that have happened recently rather than specific vulnerabilities. Uh, but they do get into a lot of kind of the more practical side of AppSec and AppSec code review, code analysis, definitely applies to kind of doing the vulnerability research for memory corruption, although they're not generally focused on the memory corruption side and have made a handful of comments, um, not necessarily against that, but kind of treating. That type of research is a bit more of the flashy stuff and focusing more on fundamentals, I guess. Nonetheless, I've enjoyed them. Um, Open Source Security Podcast falls in a similar discussional feel. I go back and forth on whether or not I actually like the whole episode, but they generally have some good discussions talking about recent security news Things that are going on, and definitely have some opinions that are well, they'll disagree with each other a lot more than Spectre and I will. So they have more just back and forth discussions on, you know, some policies or their own experiences doing stuff, and generally focused on open source. So, a few different podcasts you can listen to if you're looking for some other resources while we're gone. Um, in terms of the links, I've already mentioned Oday fans, but. I'll mention the AppSec ezine and I just follow their commit feed because that's the only place I know of for it actually. But they just have like write-ups and stuff. They have more on the red teaming stuff, but if there are binary write-ups, we'll often see them in here. Also, they'll just collect them there. Yeah. Uh, similar vein, Bad Sector Security does a lot, or Bad Sector Labs does a last week in security. Similar thing, just collating a bunch of write-ups that have gone out. You'll see things that we've covered, um, like we talked about the Printer Goes Burr, I think was the last week topic, Um, and this, oh, this is actually, I was going to say they haven't updated this in a couple weeks, because their last one was on May 9th, but I guess they have their May 22nd one now, (laughs) Uh, yesterday they didn't, or at least they didn't when I looked. Anyway. They get a bunch of links, so worth checking out. And last one, I'll leave you guys with uh, Maxwell Dolan is a resource. He does summaries of vulnerabilities, so similar to what we do. Actually, I guess, talked about the CSGO bugs that we've talked about. Uh, it's had more crypto stuff, but he'll cover binary vulnerabilities on here also. Um, and he's got a blog, which is solid and has had some
0: uh, binary topics on there also. All right, so yeah, I believe that's everything, right? Uh, do you have any other things you want to say or any other links to shout out? Uh,
1: no, I mean, that's all the, in references I had, I had a couple more on our Bug Bounty episode that are more uh, WebSec-related, like uh, a couple Reddits there, NetSec, but most people already know about that, so I don't think I really need a... I mean, technically, I did just shout out, but uh, yeah, no, I think that's all. Um, Hopefully that's enough to keep people occupied while we're off on our uh, summer break.
0: Yeah. So uh, as always, thank you goes out to everyone who listened. Uh, If you want to go back and check out past episodes, you can find the recent ones on Twitch and all of them are on YouTube, Spotify, Apple podcasts, more links off of anchor. Uh, While we will not be doing the scheduled streams, we will still be around on discord and whatnot. So feel free to join that Uh, link for that is down below or in the chat. Uh, And also Feel free to shoot some ideas in there for the Spot the Bone shirts if you have some as well. Uh, Just a quick reminder on that as well. And yeah, so uh, we'll be back on September 25th and 26th. Until then, uh, wish you all a happy summer and uh, we'll see you then.